This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Civil Estimator talked about how they use Shopify to sell their services. On today's podcast, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that set up a hotline for feedback during their Kickstarter campaign. In this episode, you'll learn the criteria they use to figure out what to sell, how to attract non-English speaking Kickstarter backers to your campaign, and why you want to launch on both Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Today I'm joined by Victor Grabowski from Foreverspin.com. Foreverspin is a Canadian company dedicated to making the world's finest spinning tops and was started in 2013 and based out of Toronto, Canada. Welcome, Victor. Hello, Felix. It's very nice to be on the show. Great. So tell us a little bit more about your store and uh, what is the products that you sell? Absolutely. For- Forever Spin is essentially a very high quality, very elegant collection of metal spinning tops. And right now it comes in a variety of 18 different metals and finishes, ranging from aluminum to titanium to stainless steel, tungsten and copper. There are 18 different varieties, so we've gone through a very wide range of metals, but it- effectively it's a very high quality spinning top collection. Awesome. So have you always been interested in spinning tops? Like, How did you get involved in starting a, a, a store? Well, I guess the, we'll get into this a little bit later, but you first started the Kickstarter campaign. But how did you get involved in creating spinning tops? So I've actually not been um, that big of a fan of spinning tops for all my life. It's something that I re- remember from my childhood, but I've always been a fan of just items that you can hold in your hand, items with a tactile experience, something that you can fidget with. Now, I do have two business partners and the other two business partners are really the ones that had the inspiration for the Spinning Top project that we're speaking about today. And we decided to bring a product to life, really something that's very high quality, something that we can dedicate a level of excellence to. And we started going through some criteria. And, and in our brainstorming sessions, going through our criteria, through our values, we just found that all of us remember a wooden spinning top as our first ever toy. And in that experience, we decided to make it very elegant, very sleek and stylish and make it out of metal, which isn't something that's very common. Yeah, so it sounds like you had a pretty methodical approach to figuring out, well, let me take a step back. It sounds like you guys all wanted to start a business. You wanted to start something and you guys had a list of criteria or some kind of exercise you worked through to figure out what it is that you should start, what, it, what is it that you should be selling. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, that exercise you went through? Because I think it's a, a situation or a, um, a stage that a lot of entrepreneurs go through where they have inspiration to start a business but are, but are not sure how to even narrow down the options. Can you, so can you talk to us about how you guys work to narrow down your options? Yeah, absolutely. So to give you a bit of history as well about our company, we actually didn't start with products per se as we began. So we did start working on some software projects, really working towards solving problems that exist in the real world with software and applications that you can do with data. And from there, we found out that we really didn't have the capital required to sustain what we had wanted to do. So we ventured into alternative funding means, which drove us to Kickstarter. And there, we really started to buckle down on this criteria that we had for our project. And some of that criteria was that whatever we create, 
It has to be incredibly high quality. It's something that has to be revered, something that's very re highly respected for its quality and for its dedication to detail. Another criteria of our brands and our projects is that it's something that brings joy to the individuals that, that do get that experience, to experience our product. It's something that's also, I guess, paired with the nostalgia um, for this particular project. But really, it's just the fact that we can bring such high quality to our product and really instill that sense of joy and really brighten up anyone's day. And the fact that it is also nostalgic, the fact that it is high quality, that's also a learning tool for a lot of individuals over the world is something that contributed to us selecting this project. Now, going through the process, we actually had a list of about 20 different projects. And as I did mention earlier, it's something that we settled on because all of us really remembered that tactile experience. Our first ever toy had been a wooden spinning top and we just went with it and, and wanted to create it and put some little magic behind it, put some quality behind it. Yeah, that makes sense. So you had this list of criteria. It sounded like you said high quality, needs to bring joy, and then uh, maybe as a bonus, uh, be nostalgic. So you had these, this list, and I think maybe other listeners out there that uh, are either thinking about starting business or thinking about expanding their product line also have criteria. But then from there, how do you know what kind of, I guess, options you have to throw against it? Like, do you do any research from there or just kind of, kind of sit down and brainstorm and think about all the things that might fit this category, this uh, list of criteria? So really, it's just, um, the, the method was very unique. We just sat down, we thought about things that we could do. And another criteria that I did fail to mention earlier is, is that it has to be simple as well. So there's really a beauty in, in simplicity. There's an elegance in simplicity that you don't really see much anymore, especially with how high-tech telephones are becoming, how high-tech apps are becoming, and how saturated you are with technology on a day-to-day -day basis. So what we wanted to do was bring a little bit of simplicity back into the world, get some calmness into the hectic day-to-day -day of everyone's life. But that was another criteria of ours. And in our brainstorming session, we just went through through different ideas, thought about what would be cool, what would be very unique to do. What do we have the capability to create as well, since there is a restriction on our abilities as professionals and as engineers. And from there, we had a short list of about 20 ideas, 20 feasible ideas, and we went with spinning tops, which we've never looked back from. That's, that's awesome. So were there any other products that almost made the cut, or like were there other finalists that made it through the list of criteria, and then you had to kind of make a hard decision on which direction to go? There definitely were. There were a few projects that we're actually working on right now. We're, we're hoping to bring them to market, and I guess that's the extent of what I can say about them. Sure. But they are, they are very relate, related as well. We do always incorporate that aspect of quality, that aspect of simplicity and dedication to detail. And with that said, these new products that we do hope to bring to market are also metal-based. So they are metal objects. It's, it's also something that we've developed strong efficiencies in and something that we can reliably bring to the level of care and the level of quality that our customers appreciate and are expecting of us. Yeah, so you don't have to go into details about the this other product, but it sounds like because there was another competing product that you guys wanted to do, how did you know not to try to do all of it at once? You know, because I think that's a another situation that a lot of us entrepreneurs run into, which is that we have so many great ideas and a lot of them are quote unquote de-risked because we kind of worked through some exercise or worked through a list of criteria that you guys went through. But then how do you force yourself or maybe how did you know not to try to launch with more than one thing? Well, really now it's becoming harder than it, than it was in the past. In the past, we were more dedicated to 
really working back to what we had been doing earlier, and, and that's the software project that we were working on, just getting some funding for what we had really been working towards. And with the Spinning Top project, we, we launched on Kickstarter and never really anticipated that it would become as popular, as successful as it is, as it is now. So from there, I guess we got the validation. It's something that we've turned to, and it's something that we are very, very proud of now. We have a community of backers, of individuals in over 90 different countries that we have a commitment to, we have an obligation to, and we keep bringing new products to our collection for them. But as far as jumping into that first project, I guess our circumstances were a bit different, but I don't anticipate that it would be hard for us or, or that it would have been any harder had we a different motive. Mm, okay, makes sense. So you guys were uh, launched a Kickstarter, got that quick validation, and because and we'll go into details about this, but because it became so successful so quickly, you kind of not you, the decision was made very easily that hey, this is taken off. Let's just devote our time on what's already working. Yeah, absolutely. And and the process for for any Kickstarter project is also a strenuous one. So you do learn a significant amount from the time that you do launch a project, from the time actually that you create. Your, your photographs, your prototypes, everything of, of the such, to the time where you actually ship all of your backers, all of your contributors' rewards, and their spinning tops in this case. And that was a very humbling process. It, it's one that we learned a lot during, and, and it's something that we just decided. We, we had a bit of a paradigm shift, and it's something that we were very happy to continue with. Mm-hmm. So I want to take a little bit of a step back towards um, the very first kind of entrepreneurial thing that you guys wanted to do. So you guys were a group of uh, three founders that wanted to start a, a business. Was that the goal, like to start a business? Because you were saying before that you started off uh, in, a, in a, trying to start a software company. Um, give us an idea of like, you know, what was your motivation when you guys uh, all sat down and said, let's start something together? Really, it was just, it was a need for something better. Um, and, and better, I say, from, from a global perspective, because better it can be very different for a lot of different individuals, right? It could be better salary, it could be better pay. But for us, really, we have this dedication to, to quality, and that's really our credo is, is quality, simplicity, and the fact that we can bring elegance with what we create. And really, that was our motivation for starting something of our own. We, we really wanted to be responsible for what we create, and we wanted to achieve excellence, which is something that we're very happy to see other entrepreneurs um, striving for. So that's really the motivating factor. It's something that still drives us today. It's, it's something that we always strive towards is the continued growth um, from a professional perspective and from a personal perspective. Mm-hmm. So what was that transition like going from mostly working with, um, yeah, you know, digital, uh, not this digital, but not tangible products now to uh, producing and selling physical products. What was that transition like? What were some things that uh, maybe new skills that you guys had to pick up now that you were moving into this, uh, this new territory back at the you know, very beginning? Oh, it was, it was definitely an incredibly um, strenuous learning experience. And we did learn an incredible amount. Naturally, given that we were working in that space earlier, that's not something that we ever needed to ship products for. So we, we went through that logistics process, really the discovery stage of how to ship a product to over 200 different countries. And there's a lot that you learn as time passes. There's a lot you're forced to learn. And really, again, our, our driving factor is our dedication to our backers, our dedication to our craft and to that excellence. And with that, there's no real limit on what you can achieve. Awesome. So when you decided to uh, focus on spinning tops, did you guys try to validate the product in any other way? Or was the first really big validation coming from the Kickstarter campaign? 
we actually had another project launch before the Spinning Top Company. It was it's an unrelated project, and that we used just to test the waters of Kickstarter. Mm. So really, aside from validating Spinning Tops and what they could, could be and what they are, we decided to validate the platform as a whole and really work through our way of, of getting to know that shipping process, of getting to know the fulfillment process, of how to really communicate with a global audience, right? And from there, we kind of just threw up the Spinning Top project on Kickstarter. Luckily, it got a bit of traction and got um, viral in some scenarios, and we just hit it. <laughs> we got very lucky and hit it out of the park on that first project. That's awesome. That's interesting that you say that you wanted to validate the platform first. And I've heard this um, more and more frequently over the last couple months, which is about how you should really try to figure out the distribution um, channel first, not necessarily like physical distribution, but how can you get your message? How can you get your product out to people first? So it sounds like that's exactly what you guys were doing. You wanted to make sure that Kickstarter was actually going to be a viable way to launch a product and obviously learn a lot of things along the way too. Do you Can you, can you say what that first um, project was and was it successfully funded? It was successfully funded. We actually did go through another iteration as well with a different edition. But it was a plush toy project. It, it didn't perform as well as Forever Spin has naturally, and it hasn't gone on to raise millions of dollars through several crowdfunding campaigns. But it was a very strong stepping stone for us, and it did let us learn all of those introductory skills that we needed to be successful for Forever Spin and our subsequent projects. So let's talk about that. So what was the, what did you go into um, your first campaign with the uh, first project? The You said Plush Toys, was that what it was? Yes, yeah. What did you go into it, I guess? Um, what are some things, some assumptions maybe that you had going into uh, launching your first campaign on Kickstarter that were, uh, you know, maybe changed as you were running the campaign? So actually, the, one of the very first assumptions that we was quickly proved wrong for us is the limitation of your customer base, right? The exposure that you get. And, and what we had assumed is that Kickstarter was primarily visited by an English-speaking audience, which is true. It is a fact. But actually now what our data reflects is that almost 50% of Kickstarter visitors are from outside of Canada and from outside of the United States, bringing a lot of potential market, a lot of potential individuals that can see your product, that can be interested in it and pick it up for themselves. So that's where you do have to establish that capacity to ship worldwide. So that was the very first thing. There were a bit of things that we didn't know from a logistics perspective that were required after the fact. But um, with respect to marketing and with respect to just the platform as a whole, there's definitely many things that we learned. Mm -hmm. So once you did launch your the Kickstarter campaign for the spinning top, did you do any validation prior of the product, like you know trying to sell it any other way or um, find other ways to validate it before launching Kickstarter, or did you guys just, just say let's put this on Kickstarter, see what happens, and then that would be the validation itself? No, for Forever Spin for the first project, we really just threw it on Kickstarter and let the quality of our work speak for itself, and that's really how it was picked up. That's how it became popular, since we do have that dedication to excellence and to quality. So our marketing materials were on point. Uh, people just liked our page, our spinning tops. They, again, had that feeling of nostalgia, which helped in the sharing of it, and from there, it just kind of took off. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so when you um, launched the the uh, the spending top Kickstarter campaign, you said that you learned you know things about logistics and shipping from the very first campaign. Did you learn anything as well about how to present the product itself? Like you know, there's just so many things that you could that you see on a Kickstarter page, and so many different ways that you can you know get your message out there through your Kickstarter page. So many ways to optimize it. Like, what are some key things that that you learned in the f- between the first Kickstarter campaign? campaign with the plush toys to your uh, Kickstarter campaign for this first spinning top uh, campaign. Yeah, absolutely. And and the time between our first campaign and now is is quite a very long period. So we have learned a substantial amount during that time. Now, there's things that we learned even during our first campaign, which I guess more relevant to the conversation now rather than how it's evolved over time, but first and foremost, I can say that really what you have to focus on is just making sure that you have a keen eye for for details to make sure that all of your text is correct, that the images are accurate, that they're representative of your product, that they're well photographed, well lit, that your text and the way that you communicate with your backers is also universal and and simple. So there's a lot of key things like that that are very important. And when it comes to the video as well, there's many stylistic choices that are specifically set for the global audience that a lot of people don't understand why we did this over this, but really it's because we do have that obligation to the rest of the world and not just the English-speaking population. Mm, okay, so you said a few things there that I want to touch on. So, um, what are some keys to be to 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 include in your page or your video to be more inclusive uh, of the global audience rather than just focus on English-speaking uh, visitors? So. Uh, being from a language perspective, for instance, all you have to do is really try to simplify your language, make sure that it's clear, that it's concise, and that it's understandable by as much of the world as you can make it to be. Now, with that said, there's Google Translate and there's all of these different services for Chrome, for Safari that can translate the page for somebody living in Turkey or somebody living in China. But the easier that you can bring your message across to someone that does speak English, I can guarantee that it'll also be easier for that individual that doesn't speak English after translating and before translating. Um, aside from that, uh, the actual images themselves and how you present your product are also incredibly important. So, for instance, pointing out features on the image page versus typing them out on a bullet point, um, on a list of bullet points down below is something that's also important. That's something that works far better for that global audience versus the English-speaking audience. Mm, I see. So basically, almost like speak less and just show more. Like show more of like of different images, or um, just don't rely so much on on the language, uh, written language itself, but be more, I guess, demonstrative with the the images and and the videos. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, and it does also give a little bit of more emphasis on your product itself and the design of your product. And if that's something that is supported by pictures speaking louder than words, then that's something that's definitely better for you from a marketing perspective and getting your message out. Um, Video for for our particular brand, for a spinning top, is significantly more effective than images are. So we try to get in as much video as possible, make sure that all of our information, our points, are brought up in the video versus the text below it. And especially with spinning tops, it's something that you have to see in action to really appreciate and Beyond that is something that you have to feel in your hands, really get that tactile experience and see in front of you to appreciate even more. And that's the experience that we've been able to bring to our backers, to our customers, and the expectation of that experience. 
Mm, gotcha. So you mentioned uh, earlier that about how you really have to have a keen eye for for detail. Are there, you know, based on your experience and maybe other campaigns you've looked at, are there some common details that you see other campaigns missing that that you know you would definitely advise new Kickstarter campaign uh, creators to make sure they hit? Missing? Uh, I don't know per se. I, I don't actually look at that many projects anymore personally we we are very busy with our obligations with making sure that we ship packages all over the world into our backers but definitely one thing to look out for is i guess not to add but to make sure that you don't add is any contradicting points you make sure that your project page that your presentation as simple as it can be and that may have to result in you just eliminating a lot of text but if that's what has to be done for you to convey your message better, that that's simply it. Mm, that makes sense. I think that a lot of times we want to get everything out there, all the features, list everything. But you're saying that, uh, f- you know, based on what you're saying just now, and then also uh, your, um, I guess, um, emphasis on supporting the, the be more inclusive of the non-speaking, non-English speaking audience is to not use so many words and try, try to be as simple as possible. I think that's a great piece of advice to give. Um, so when you're creating these Kickstarter uh, pages, either through, with your video or your images or your the copy that's on the page, do you guys um, hire any help for that or is it all done in-house? Everything to date has been done in-house. It's something that we're very proud of. And the team that we have here in Toronto, they're, they're brilliant. They do a very good job and really it's all starts with our dedication to quality and our, our dedication to excellence. And at the end of the day, there are a lot of activities that we believe will always be done better in-house because we, we imagine them in the first place. We know how it should look. We know how it should be written, how it should be portrayed, that we don't believe that there are many individuals that will be able to, to I guess, succeed more than, than ourselves in that capacity. Mm. Do you ever feel that you might be spreading yourself too thin by uh, trying to take everything on? Like, have you run into that issue yet with, you know, trying to uh, not necessarily keep hold on to everything, but keep it all in house? When you um, do, you feel like you are running up against a limit at any point with um, trying to handle everything yourself? Not yourself, but the company itself. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely that that concern, and that is something that we alleviate as we grow our team. We train individuals that we add to the team to be able to perform our tasks. And I guess in, in what you're saying, that would be identical to hiring a professional or hiring some company. But really, we do, at the end of the day, have more care for our project. We do put in that extra mile that is always lost, or most of the time it's lost. There's just not that much emphasis on detail, not much excellence on, sorry, attention to excellence when you do work on somebody else's project. I see. So you, if you did need help with something in particular, you guys would just hire them in-house and train them uh, on basically your, your ethos or your philosophy on this excellence and focus on quality. Is that what you're getting at, that you wouldn't outsource it? But if you wanted some help there, you would just hire them in-house and train them? Really, to date, we've, we've, most of the issues that we have come across and most of our challenges in growth have all been tackled in-house by the immediate team. So by the founding team, so we do have a very strong ability to problem solve, and that's where our strength lies. And a lot of our problems have been solved internally. So that's something that we're very proud to have been able to accomplish. Now, for some high-level tasks, for programming work, for et cetera, et cetera, um, that is something that we would contract out. But as far as just anything that's qualitative of our brand, that's something that we tend to mm. keep 
keep internally. I see what you're saying. So quality is like the core competency of your brand, of your company. Anything that that requires uh, or that um, is required to uphold that quality, you guys have a, a stance to keep it in-house. Anything that is not uh, core to, or that is not related to that core of quality, then you're more comfortable actually outsourcing or hiring outside. Yeah, that's exactly right. Awesome. Okay, so let's talk about your Kickstarter campaigns, um, the the ones for spending uh, forever spin. So there are. It looks like you have three campaigns that you guys have launched, all super successful. Can you, can you give us a rundown of um, the 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 funds? That I guess that were raised from these three. Yeah, absolutely. So the very first campaign we launched was in 2014. It launched in February, which is early in the year, and that campaign was the one that we didn't really have validation for. So we we kind of threw it on Kickstarter. And we had tremendous, tremendous community support. We had a lot of individuals calling us, asking about different medals to add, asking about expanding our collection, which is something that drove us to creating more Kickstarter projects in the future. But the very first campaign, it raised about $140,000 with 17 or 1,800 backers. Now, from there, the period to fulfill that is a learning period. We learned a lot about how to really manage our project, how to perform the manufacturing, how to perform our shipping, and really how to handle all of that. So that project was fulfilled in, I believe, July or August, if memory serves correctly. And from there, we started working on the next iteration of Spinning Tops, which on Kickstarter can be found as Forever Spin 2.0. Now, Forever Spin 2.0, we added to our collection yet again. The original collection was 10 Spinning Tops, where in the 2.0, we added some very, very unique Spinning Tops, and we also pride ourselves in, in really reaching for stuff that's never been done before, for very innovative things. So we created some spinning tops out of black rhodium, white rhodium, out of a plated silver, cast iron, and rose gold, which is the spinning tops that we added to our collection in the second Kickstarter project, which launched in October of 2014. So later that year, we had about $400,000 raised in that project with 3,700 or 3,800 backers. Now, that collection also did include another addition to our collection, which was the spinning base, which was an item that was highly requested by our backers. Now, a thing that really sets us apart from a lot of other project creators and a lot of the community on Kickstarter is that we have this very strong dedication to our backers. Really, the reason that we do go back to Kickstarter is to accommodate their needs. There's a lot of individuals that are exclusively familiar with Kickstarter that like to support the platform and that aren't really comfortable with purchasing online in other locations. And with that said, we went back to Kickstarter with their recommendations, with their suggestions and bringing items to the market that they had requested. For instance, the spinning base, the accessory to the collection that we had, it was specifically for them. It was requested, I believe, 200, 300 times by our first set of backers, with the other medals also being all requested over 100 times, with rose gold being very, very popular. So we did always dedicate our projects to our backers. The second campaign had finished in December, and we successfully delivered all of our, all of our backers' awards in July of the following year, and then we began working on another project, which is, again, expanding our collection. We redesigned our spinning base, redesigned some items and some proportions, and in that, again, it was a very strong dedication to our backers to expand our collection to make sure that it is as high quality as it could be. And in that, we 
just found a lot of success with the continued support that we got from our audience, from our backers. Awesome. So let's start with the very first one, the um, the Forever Spin Spinning Tops uh, campaign uh, that raised 100, almost $140,000. So it looks here that your original goal, I'm not sure if this is in Canadian dollars or U.S. dollars, but it says $1,500. So either way, very slow goal that was destroyed by your ultimate um, the amount that you raised. Uh, what did you, what did you guys have? Like how prepared were you guys to almost have, what is this a hundred times your, your, your original goal that, that you end up raising? Like, were you guys prepared at all for this kind of a, a massive um, funding? <laughs> Absolutely not. And <laughs> that resulted in, in a lot of late nights and, and really we are very dedicated to our backers to make sure that we fulfill our liabilities as fast as possible and really fulfill on our obligations. And and it did lead into a lot of very late nights, making sure that we give every fiber of of our energy to our backers. And that is something that was a lesson very well learned. But that's not something we expected. That's something that we faced and we overcame in the end. That's awesome. So what did you, the, the, the initial amount of $1,500, what did you, I guess, need uh, that, that funding for? Was it just for validation? Because it doesn't seem like a lot of money to be working with to, to start a company. So what did you need that $1,500 for? It was for some prototyping. So just make sure that we have the perfect design. And mm-hmm. the design did go through many, many iterations. I believe we went through hundreds of drawings, through hundreds of redesigns, making sure that we do have that perfect spinning top from an appearance perspective and, and a spinning top perspective. So there is a bit of a dual function there. It's something that has to look incredibly elegant while also functioning very well from a performance standpoint. So that is a very nice balance. It's something that we've been able to achieve, and it's something that, that wasn't fast. It, it didn't happen overnight, and that is something that we did need the funding for. But aside from that, just to make sure that our process is solid, that it's complete for the metals that we did add to our collection as well. There are some alloys that we used and some different pure metals that are very, very rarely machined, that they're very rarely used, and that's something that we're very proud to have brought to our collection as well. Mm-hmm. So once you did hit this um, $140,000 funding um, goal at the end of this, again, from almost 1,900 backers, what, what was like the next step? Like you guys, as this was going on, well, actually, you know, before we get there, how quickly were you able to break through that, that goal? Was it very early, like the very first day, or like how, how soon did you um, break that uh, $1,500 goal? I think it happened in like 17 hours or something. It was, it was crazy. Um, and then from there, there were several, several thousands of orders the following day as well. And, and the last three days of the campaign also just exploded. So it's not something that, that we expected, but we did face it. And we did overcome that in the end. And that's something that we're very happy about. So what did you think? What do you think? Um, how did you guys get traction so so quickly? You know, the, the fifteen hundred dollars is, uh, you know, obviously great, but uh, you know, raising one hundred and forty thousand dollars over the entire life of, life of the campaign is, you know, obviously better. So what did, what was happening? Like, how did you drive the traffic and promote the campaigns? The way the way that Kickstarter works, it it does it does reward some projects in terms of visibility as they're immediately launched. At the end of the day, Kickstarter is about successfully funding projects. So it does, it does inflate the visibility of projects as they're launched just to create that buzz, to create that significance and that, that visibility in those projects. And being that we did get a lot of traction right away just based on the merit of our spinning tops, a lot of people liked the idea, they loved the idea, and we've had repeat customers, we've had 
collections shipped to schools for teachers that have backed us in the past, to museums, to, to universities even as well. But our, our collection was just liked a lot and, and Kickstarter's own visibility and its algorithm for sorting and the appearance of the project helped us a lot. Um, in that, just as the buzz grew, as more individuals started talking about it, we got picked up by a few news outlets and that significantly helped as well. But there's no real PR, there's nothing, um, nothing that we did internally to support that traffic, it just came organically. Did you, um, and I've heard this from other Kickstarter campaigns too about the very beginning, which is what you're saying about how if you can get that traction early on, because Kickstarter is incentivized to successfully fund campaigns, they're going to want to highlight campaigns that are successfully funded. So what did you um, do early on? Were you promoting it to friends and family? How did you get that early traction to get Kickstarter to pay attention to, you know, obviously great product and everything, but how did you even get them to notice your your product in the first place? Yeah, it was it was uh, it was something that we did promote to our friends and family. They naturally helped it in the start, but really we owe our success and the funding of that project to the Kickstarter community. The first person sees it, then they, they let one of their friends know, hey, this is very cool. Then that second person sees it and from there Kickstarter's algorithm kicks in. It just boosts the visibility to the front page, to the what's popular page, to the top in design page. And, and from there, it's just something that, that spiraled and you did get that viral effect or that mm-hmm. pseudo viral effect. So uh, the, once you raised the $140,000 and how long was this like a 30 day campaign or how long did it run for? It's 35 days. 35 days. So after that 35 days uh, ran and you guys had you know, a good amount of cash, capital to invest in the business, what was the next step? Like, Did you have to get manufacturers? Like, What was the very next thing you guys decided to do once you got that check? I'm not sure how, how Kickstarter pays you, gives you the money, but like once you got the money in the accounts, like, what did you guys do immediately? So again, we just went into the design stage. Back into the design stage, we learned a lot about our product as well and about what the customer wants as we did launch that product. We had 1,700 people send us hundreds of emails, thousands of emails, and we actually had them call us on a dedicated hotline as well, which is something that not a lot of other project creators do. But in that, we just went back to the drawing board, or I guess returned to the drawing board, just to make sure that our product and our spinning tops are as elegant and as high performance as they can be maintaining that balance between the two. So there was a lot of design work that had to be done. Um, Beyond that, the next stage was to make sure that we select the right materials, that we use only the finest alloys. So we started sourcing our materials and manufacturers, and from there, it was just making sure that that manufacturing process is coordinated, that we have all the quality control checks in place, since we are a company that's very highly dedicated to quality and making sure that we do have a very keen eye as to what we do ship to our customers and to our backers. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because you you, you emphasize on this on this episode and in in your on uh, your Kickstarter p- uh, campaign and uh, on your store about this uh, quality and attention to detail, which I can imagine um, is could be stressful when you are finding looking for a manufacturer and making sure that they are adhering to your your standards. And there's probably listeners out there that don't need this kind of attention to detail, but can still probably benefit from your advice on this. What can you do to ensure that manufacturers are producing things to your standards? So naturally, there's several quality control checks, and they actually start at the material stage before the manufacturing stage. So it is very important that you have stringent QA checks at each 
process of your manufacturing process. So there's the, sh the shipping of materials that has to be checked before and after departure with a composition test, making sure that your tops are exactly as you design them, that they're exactly to spec. And are you testing this or is there somebody that's at the manufacturer testing this? There would be manufacturers testing it. There would be intermediaries testing it, just making sure that we have the best materials that we could possibly get and the best materials in the context of what we're doing. So are you, so you giving them like, I, I'm not, I don't know anything about this, this stuff, but are you giving them specific like uh, numbers and then through the, from the test, you want your alloys, your metals to, to hit a certain, I guess, number of uh, purity or quality. I'm not sure what the right term for it is, but how are you doing this in a quantitative way, saying like, hey, I want you to test this, but has it hit these particular um, checkpoints? Yeah, so that's exactly right. For instance, the copper that we use is 99.9% .9 pure. And this is something that not a lot of people machine. It's not an alloy that, rather not an alloy, but it's not a metal that's commonly found as well. Most mm -hmm. people do get copper in, in an alloy state, which is either bronze or brass. And with copper, that 99.9% .9 pure does have to be checked for purity, does have to be checked for contents and for everything like that. Um, there are the other metals that we did use that we introduced to our collection. For instance, the titanium, we use a very high grade of titanium. And that has to be checked for composition as well to make sure that it does abide exactly by our specifications. Otherwise, it's not what we had promised to our customer. We promised the highest grade of titanium possible for the, the context of what we do and for our spinning tops. And that's something that we intend to deliver on. So that's something that's very important to us and, and that did go through that QA process. Mm -hmm. So uh, one thing you're saying about the, the campaign, the very first one that was happening and then uh, as you're gearing for your second one was about how you got a lot of feedback. And I think this is, you know, feedback is obviously invaluable. And you said that you even had a hotline set up to get this feedback. Um, what, what were you doing, I guess, to solicit feedback? So I think this is a problem that other entrepreneurs might run into, which is that they want to do things to improve their business. They want to improve the product, uh, but they're not getting enough feedback from their customers. Are you guys doing anything specific to try to get people to give more of their opinion to, to you guys? Not really anything specific, no. And again, really, Kickstarter is among the top thousand visited websites in the world. It, uh, it is a website that gets a lot of traffic through day in, day out. And if there's enough people excited about your project, then you do open up that possibility for them to speak with the founders, to speak with a member of the staff, to make their suggestions, and to improve, ultimately, a project that they back and an item that they purchase. It's something that a lot of individuals are open to the opportunity of. And with respect to our spinning tops, it is something that, that a lot of people were excited for. And just, again, on the basis of that, there's a lot of individuals that called. We had hundreds of calls, and, and unfortunately, it's just not something that's shared. It's not an ideology that's shared by a lot of Kickstarter project creators. There's not many projects that do have that line open, that, that do have that dedicated telephone line for individuals to call. Okay, can you say a little bit more about this, just in case anybody out there that is thinking about launching a campaign and wants to be really tapped into the the uh, you know potential customers? Like, how do you set up? Well, what is this hotline that you set up? Is it just a cell phone number? And how do you display it on your Kickstarter page? Yeah, we we effectively bought a dedicated telephone line, and that was tethered to our cell phone. So whenever somebody called, we would answer. We would speak with their backers. We would take in their feedback and. Again, when you have that personal connection with one of your customers and as a customer, when you have that connection with the founder, the person that you're buying something from, you do feel much, much more special. 
and that's something that you're very happy to support and support in perpetuity and through project iterations, through additions to that product line. And we are very grateful to all of our backers. Mm-hmm. So one other thing you mentioned um, in the, uh, I guess, uh, pre-interview things that we were talking about was about how social proof is really important for you guys. Can you talk talk a little bit more about this? Like, what does social proof um, mean for anybody out there that might not know what that is? And how does it help you with your, your business? So, yeah, naturally transitioning into, into Kickstarter and into our website, which is where we make sales on a daily basis. We do sell on foreverspin.com, it's something that significantly supports your brand and significantly supports the perception that people are buying this item. Um, spinning top isn't a spinning top isn't something that everybody would buy. It's not the reality of it. It's just the way that it is. But when you do have that social proof, when you do see that, hey, my my neighbor bought it, or somebody that lives a few blocks down from me bought it in the state of Pennsylvania or in the in the state of wherever, or in the X country, that's something that really supports the fact that we do bring something that's very special to the entire world. And now we have shipped to over 90 different countries. And that's something that supports our social standing and supports the fact that we do ship, that we're a very legitimate company and that we are here to stay. So what do you mean by like social proof though? Is it like, uh, how do people, how are people, just so I can clarify for listeners, like social proof is just basically uh, the validation, I guess, from your peers, like you're saying, your neighbors or your family that, that uh, have purchased this and because they've purchased it, you feel a little bit less, uh, it becomes less risky for you to purchase it as well. So how do you demonstrate something like that either in a Kickstarter or on your Shopify store? How do you emphasize that there's been, uh, I guess, um, social proof for your product? So transitioning it to our website now, again, it did go through Kickstarter. And on Kickstarter, the numbers speak for themselves. There's 1,800 people that support our first project. There's 3,700 people Mm. that support our second project and 5,000 people that support our third project. And this is from all walks of life from all over the world, and it's something that people can join. We really have a community here where our customers, they speak to each other on the message board that exists within Kickstarter as a platform. Now, beyond that, there's Facebook, there's just the reviews that come from the individuals that we've shipped spinning tops to, the um, social proof that we got from Dragon's Den as well, which is the Canadian equivalent of Shark Tank, which is somewhere where we were very happy to be included. And when you have that proof, it becomes undeniable. And there is a stage at which people say, hey, this is a very legitimate product. This is something that I was skeptical about at first. And now it's something I really want. Mm. So, so what looks like one of the keys is that you've had a lot of uh, very public uh, purchases uh, or at least um, pre-orders through Kickstarter makes it a lot of uh, a less risky purchase for other people because they see that a lot of, you know, 2,000, 5,000, whatever the other number was, a lot of thousands of people are already buying this product, which makes them now, now, not necessarily only trust you guys more, but then also want it because they're like, why is everyone buying this? Let me take a look at it. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's exactly right. So to, to put it into simplest terms, nobody wants to be the first. Yeah. Right? You go to Amazon and you see some product listing that, that sells all over the world, but it has two units sold. Right? Right. You don't want to be that second person. You don't want to be that fourth person to, to test an item that you may not believe has the quality that's promised. You want to be that 7,000th person that's supporting it and that knows that you're getting something good. And really, that's the social proof that we've gotten. It's with that support and with that audience and our 
our uh, <laughs> thankful ability to have been able to ship to thousands of individuals all over the world that were able to do that. Yeah, and just to, uh, I'm not sure if you guys experienced this with Kickstarter, but uh, if you are launching on Kickstarter, this is why it's really important to try to get that early traction because if someone doesn't know you and doesn't know, have never heard of you and they come to your Kickstarter page and zero people have funded it, you're not going to want to be the first one. But if you have your network, your friends and family who already do trust you, who don't need social proof, if they're the one first ones to help support your your uh, your business or your your Kickstarter campaign, then that starts this kick off the social proof. And just because there's not more than one person, I'm sorry, just because if just by the fact that there is more than one person already that's supporting this campaign, could be enough to compel strangers to also back it. Um, cool. So let's talk about the shipping because you mentioned a couple of times you shipped to did you say 90 countries or what was the number? Yeah, we've now shipped to over 90 different countries. Awesome. So what is that experience? like? How do you set up your, uh, I guess, supply chain, your logistics to be able to ship to over 90 different countries? Um, essentially, we, we've been searching for a very long time for a perfect solution, and, and it hasn't been an easy search. But in time, and as you dedicate enough time to that, enough resources, you do find the ability to do so. You, you find partners that can ship all over the world for you and different companies, and that's something that we have put our trust into. We found these companies that can ship all over the world. They can ship packages with tracked, with tracking information, comprehensive tracking checkpoints. So it is something that just we didn't have the ability to do before, and I have never dreamt of being able to ship to all of these different countries, but it's something that, in retrospect, just seems incredibly easy, but it's not the easiest transition to get into. Right. So are you working, do you have to work with multiple uh, logistics and shipping companies to do this? Or is there a central one that you uh, can maybe recommend that uh, listeners check out if they want to be able to ship globally? We did go through several different companies, at least in our search. And there's a few companies that um, will definitely be better than others, but I can't recommend a specific company over, over a different one because there's a lot of variations in your cost depending on what you're shipping and where you're shipping. So there is a lot of options and you just have to do your due diligence which is another thing that we believe is just with every decision that you make you have to make sure that all of the options are laid out on the table and that you have a very strong understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. Or maybe you can tell us like what kind of key factors that um, a listener should look out for if they are looking to um, partner with a shipping or logistics company to ship globally. Like, What are some important things that they should uh, either ask the company or, or include in their research? Yeah, naturally, um, first and foremost, there's cost. What is going to be the cost of you shipping? Then there's transit times. There's tracking capabilities. A lot of individuals, especially with Amazon being so incredibly popular and widely used, a lot of people expect tracking information for their packages. And this is true for, for destinations all over the world. Um, so, so those are really the three biggest factors. And transit time is becoming much, much more important than it had been in the past. I see. That makes sense. Cool. So... Um I want to talk now about about branding. Uh, so you mentioned this as well as something that you wanted to talk about, which is the importance of having a brand. I think this is that word is just so. Uh, I guess in general, it's kind of a vague word. So maybe t- for you, like on a day to day basis, what are you as a company, or maybe what are you personally doing to, uh, I guess, establish and push the Forever Spin brand? So branding, yeah, <laughs> just exactly as you had said it is a very 
it's a very broad word and it's right. hard to define in one sentence because there are so many factors that accumulate to what the amalgam of a brand actually is. Now, with that, um, there's definitely social aspects, and this goes back to the social proof that we spoke of. But really to break it down and, and how we established our brand is just making sure that we do dedicate our products to quality, is to make sure that every single spinning top is 99.9% pure copper, to make sure that every titanium top is indestructible and perfectly balanced. And with that, you just get a lot of individuals that have an appreciation for your prod- product, they do share with individuals. You get that social proof. You get individuals sharing with their friends and family. And it kind of trickles down from your customer base and the people that you're loyal to. If, first and foremost, you're loyal to your product. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're, you're um, focusing on, on the product itself, making sure that the product is upholding the brand. Is there, outside the product, are there other ways for you either do marketing that, that you focus on or someone from your team focuses on to make sure that the brand is established? We, all of the creatives that we do, and we do advertise online as well. We advertise through Facebook, through Google AdWords. Pretty much all of the creatives that we have, they do all, all reinforce that image of quality that image of simplicity as well as excellence and it is something that is uniform it's constant across all of our all of our outlets for for all of our partners that we engage with for our own marketing efforts in-house for the companies that retail our product and that sell our spinning tops it's something that that we demand from ourselves first and foremost Mm-hmm. Now, when you after you had funded on Kickstarter, I think the first time successfully, is that when you opened up the Shopify store, or when did you um, open the Shopify store? We opened the Shopify store just before we aired on Dragon's Den, which was November of 2015, just last November. Okay, so this was after all three campaigns. This was after two campaigns. Two the campaigns. third one was launched in December. We launched this last campaign in December and. It had actually run um, in concurrence to our store being live. So, mm. so were you selling? Uh, did you have a storefront on another platform? Like how were you capturing any? I guess other demand after their campaign ended. Like, how did you? What did you do about that? We did have a store. Um, it was just it was a custom store that we built ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't Shopify. It wasn't really any other platform. And when we did switch to Shopify, we found that it was a much, much better solution for us. And ever since we made the switch, it's been significantly better. And did you do anything to drive traffic to that very first store, or is it mostly just from the traffic that was coming from the Kickstarter page? Like, How do you transition from Kickstarter to your own store? How do you transition that kind of buzz? So the very first uh, thing that we did get traffic from was actually Dragon's Den, and we did launch that Shopify store a little mm-hmm. bit before Dragon's Den. And there mm-hmm. are a million individuals that watch that episode, that watch that specific episode, that watch every episode for that matter. And we did drive a lot of traffic from there. And from that, we just gained a lot of valuable data. We really, again, established who our customers were. And from there, we've had a lot of initiatives. We've had our paid advertising campaigns. We've had some social campaigns as well that have been targeting those individuals. So there is always inbound traffic. A lot of it is paid, but we do have alternative means as well. And, and definitely it all started with that Dragon's Den appearance and Kickstarter's an incredibly influential factor as well. Awesome. So what are the plans for this year? I know that you were talking about working on some other products that you can't say much about coming up, but are there any other kind of big goals that you as a company want to hit for 2016? Absolutely, yeah. So for Forever Spin, 
we're looking to get our collection into a lot more schools. And it's something that we're focusing very hard on. We, we have this educational aspect for our collection. And really, we call the Forever Spin Collection the Metal Museum. And that's because all of our collection, they are in different metals. Now we have a variety of over 18. And in that variety, there's a significant amount of variance and, and variety in our collection. So I can gather from what I know about most of the population is that uh, you, for instance, you've never held solid titanium and solid tungsten in one hand and the other at the same time. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, so for instance, when you, when you have that tactile experience firsthand, you'll never forget that tungsten is significantly heavier than titanium is. You'll never remember what the texture of, of solid nickel is or how much bronze weighs or that copper develops a patina over time. And that's just things that we, we're very passionate about bringing to schools and bringing that learning, that tactile experience to children all over the world. And it's something that we've started to do. There are a couple schools that we've gotten into that have shown our collection that have take it, taken it to their science classrooms, to their students for stress relief, for brainstorming sessions, for just getting some more focus. And it's something that we're very, very happy to be doing in the future. Awesome. So thanks so much, Victor. So foreverspin.com is the website. F-O-R-E-V-E-R-S-P-I-N.com is the website in the store. You can definitely also Google Forever Spin uh, Kickstarter campaigns if you want to see uh, how they built their Kickstarter prof- uh, pages. Um, anywhere else that you recommend listeners check out they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? Uh, definitely our Kickstarter would be, would be a very good starting point. Our website is also up to date and it does feature our entire collection minus what's available on Kickstarter. But in addition to our Kickstarter page right now, we do have an active collection on Indiegogo.com, also another crowdfunding platform where you can find our newest five tops from our collection. Mm. Well, maybe before we end off then, like what made that, so you make that transition from Kickstarter over to launching on Indiegogo? So Indiegogo is right now, the campaign that's running on Indiegogo is an in-demand campaign. So it's effectively a campaign that runs in perpetuity. And again, just going back to the fact that there are a lot of individuals that are very wary of making purchases online. They're strictly and exclusively comfortable with Kickstarter, with Indiegogo, with Amazon.ca, for instance, Mm -hmm. or Amazon.com. And really, just going back to it, we do have a very strong dedication to our customer base, to our backers. And there's a lot of people that have been requesting it, which is why we've gone back to Kickstarter three times and back to Indiegogo. Mm, very interesting. So you're basically saying that the customers that you have, and probably maybe a lot of other listeners might have these customers too, they only feel comfortable buying through certain almost websites. Uh, Kickstarter was what you guys um, kind of cut your teeth on and noticed at first, but then you also are now finding that some customers are uh, feel best buying through or funding or buying through Indiegogo. So that's why you're launching there, even though you don't necessarily need to launch on Indiegogo. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's our best channel for communication with them as well. That's where we are acquainted with them, with a lot of our customers and a lot of our backers. And that's where we're happy to come back to bring that collection to them. Awesome. I think that's a great gem. I'm glad that I asked why you launched with Indiegogo too. That makes a lot of sense. I never considered that uh, people might not feel comfortable or, or maybe feel more comfortable buying on a Kickstarter or Indiegogo um, for whatever reason they might have. So that, that makes a lot of sense. 
Awesome. So thanks again so much, Victor. Again, foreverspin.com. Look up Forever Spin on Indiegogo for a live camp, or is it called in-demand campaign, which uh, I guess should be running in perpetuity, like you said, and uh, Forever Spin on, on Kickstarter if you want to see the past campaigns. Thanks again so much for coming on, Victor. Thank you, Felix. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.